Good morning. Today's scripture comes to us from the second chapter of the book of James, verses 1 through 13. It's on page 6 of your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. James 2, 1 through 13. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, your sin, uh, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Steve. We're continuing uh, in this mini-series that we're calling Friendship in the Margins as we're exploring ways to grow in our commitment to walk with neighbors, showing compassion and justice, caring for people's needs, lifting people up, especially the least of these. And yet we're also talking about it in a way where we are saying our aspiration is not simply to go out and to serve, uh, but rather ourselves to become an economically mixed community. That over time, uh, that we would be an economically inclusive community reflecting our neighborhood and the diversity that we find all around us for the glory of Jesus. And so here's one more installment in this series. And so let's take a look at this provocative passage from James 2. Let me say a word of prayer first. Jesus, we are asking that you would come and speak to us. We pray that you would give us ears to hear. We pray that you would give us soft hearts to receive your word. I pray that you have, you would have mercy upon me, that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart pleasing to you and reflective of the truth that you so desire your people to hear. So please come and send your spirit whom we dearly need. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It's Sunday morning, 10.31 a.m. The worship service has just begun, and two visitors come 
in the doors almost at the same time. One of them is clearly wealthy, highly educated. You can just tell. You can just tell. It's the way he's dressed. It's the way he speaks. It's his body language. It's the way he's glued to his iPhone. The other man, on the other hand, is poor. He's from humble circumstances, lives a simple life, a tough life. And this, too, is pretty clear. And for all their outward differences, they do have a few things in common. Both are local neighbors. Both are new to the church, possibly to the Christian faith. Both are experiencing the Grace Meridian Hill community for the first time. So what do they experience? What they may experience, according to this passage, is what James describes as favoritism based on economic status. The unintentional or intentional preferential treatment of the wealthy and powerful and the neglect or the exclusion of the modest or the poor. And so someone in the church notices these two visitors, right? And so she puts away her own iPhone and approaches them. Maybe it's a member of the welcome team. Maybe it's just a helpful, caring member. Here's a good seat for you, she says to the first visitor, offering him a comfortable pew with a good view of all the action. To the second visitor, the poor man, she says, pointing to the back of the sanctuary, perhaps, why don't you stand there? Or you can sit on the floor by my feet. We are today, if you look around with open eyes, a predominantly, a community that's predominantly made up of young professionals. And even if you don't consider yourself rich, quote unquote, we are as a community presently rich in privilege and opportunity, in education, in relational networks, in social power and influence. And so as we talk about this vision, dream, this prayer of being an economically inclusive and mixed community, so as to not allow that to become simply lip service, isn't this a big and important question to ask based upon this passage? Dear friends, are there ways that we, in James's language, show special attention to so-called D.C. professionals, giving them the proverbial, quote, best seats in the house? Are there ways we ask our wonderful working class friends and neighbors to sit in the back or sit on the floor, demanding that they work harder than others to find their way in. Of course, when studying this passage, it's easy to look at this and say, well, 
you know, what James is talking about. It's so blatant. It's so rude. It's so obviously wrong that it can't possibly apply. But of course, he's talking about more than just such crass situations and responses as the one he describes in his example. More than just a question about where a person sits. In fact, this is why we have to notice that in verse 1, James's term for favoritism is actually in the original Greek a plural word in form, where he says we must not show favoritisms. In other words, he's probably thinking not just of this one scenario, but a wide variety of ways in which we show favoritism for the professional and neglect the poor. So today, and from this day on forward, as we grow as a community, I want to invite you to the joyful process of self-evaluation. The joyful adventure, the joyful process of growing as a community. Invite you to think about our Sunday gatherings. Think about community life. Think about your neighborhood groups, our small groups that meet midweek. Think about our church social gatherings, picnics, the ways that we do ministry in the neighborhood and in our homes. And think about whether or not you see signs of favoritism and exclusion. That we think about the way we run ministry programs. Do we host church events and programs only at times and in ways that don't fit the rhythm of life for our poor friends and neighbors? That we think about the way even that we socialize. When we meet a visitor is, what do you do for a living? The first question that we ask Do we engage only in leisure activities as a community that require a certain income level? When we get together to fellowship over a meal, how expensive is that restaurant? And does it need to be a restaurant in the first place? That we think about the way in which we talk and communicate with one another. Do casual conversations only center on certain topics of conversation? Your career your latest travels around the world? Does the church assume that everyone has internet and email access? Does the preacher hmm, expect you to have a world-class education to understand his sermons? Does the worship service or our Bible studies assume that everyone in the room is strong at reading? That we think about the way we present ourselves, even in terms of physical appearance, which happens to be what James focuses on. Do we dress in a way that makes others feel like they need to step up their game in order to fit in? Or, Or actually, conversely, are we so dressed down that those who sacrificially went the extra mile to dress their Sunday best, would they feel foolish being in our company? Is the church building, the physical space itself, decorated with a certain kind of polish that makes it feel more like a country club than a community? Or that we think about the ways we relate to people's needs? Are we surprised when people ask us for financial help? Or is that regarded in the church as normal? 
Would someone feel embarrassed here to ask for help? Would we be a community that thinks about such things? And just to be clear, it's not morally wrong at all to hang out with people that are like you. The point isn't to make you feel badly about doing that. The point is, is that all you do? And it's not wrong for a church to have some strengths in ministering to the professional, to the wealthy. The point is not to make us paranoid or obsessively self-conscious. The point is simply to become more self-aware and to become more self-sacrificially inclusive, more intentional in our relationships. And some of that intentionality involves getting concrete feedback from our friends, from our guests, from our neighbors. Because we can raise all these questions that I just listed off and rambled on about, but you can't just make up answers. Things that seem right in your head, nothing can replace getting feedback directly from people who are being or are feeling excluded. And so, in fact, if you here today are someone who's fighting against poverty on a daily basis, or maybe you might say, well, I don't know if I'm poor, but I'm definitely not a D.C. professional. We'd love to ask that you please share for all of our benefits what it's been like to be a part of our church community because we want to grow and we need your help. The point, of course, isn't just to notice ways that we exclude, seeing it only as a negative exercise, but rather it's to learn ways in which we can include, to communicate care for every kind of friend and neighbor and visitor, ways to say, here's a good seat for you. What's that good seat in our community? What is it? Are we preparing that proverbial good seat? Proactively carving out space for our neighbors. Inviting, bringing, including, welcoming, embracing, growing with in mutual community. Loving one another. another. You see, here's the thing. This passage is about mercy ministry. This ministry that the Bible talks about from cover to cover of relieving people from their suffering and from their loss. To care for people in their physical needs. One verse before this passage at the end of chapter 1, James tells us that religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless, true religion includes looking after orphans and widows in their distress. And at the end of today's passage, in verse 13, James uses the language of mercy. He's talking about mercy ministry, but don't you see, he's not just talking about how you're serving out there, but how you're loving in here. God give us grace to grow 
in this way. James gives us a few reasons, and I'll close with these quickly. A few reasons that we should not show favoritism based on people's economic backgrounds. I'll give you three. We could break down a whole bunch more in this passage, but three quickly. Number one, James reminds us, the church is family. Number one, the church is family. Again and again, James addresses his readers as spiritual siblings. Verse one, my what? Brothers and sisters. Verse five, again, listen, my dear brothers and sisters. He calls those in the church community brothers and sisters. Why? Because those who are in Jesus Christ are family sharing a common heavenly father, a father who doesn't play favorites with his kids. A friend of mine recently talking to him with some, together, with some humor and light-hearted horror, uh, a friend who has four children, told me about his uh, mom who completely and shamelessly favors one of his daughters over against the other three kids. Uh, Maybe it's grandma's prerogative to do so. I don't know. But for instance, last Christmas, she gave her favorite granddaughter $20 and all the other kids got a single. (laughs) And then on top of that, she even says, apparently repeatedly out loud and in front of everyone, albeit in Korean, uh, you're my favorite. Uh, My friend told me, you know, good thing my kids don't understand Korean very well. Uh, Just about the only thing saving them right now. Uh, My, our, your heavenly father, if you are in Christ, doesn't neglect his poorer children, doesn't show preferential treatment to his wealthier children. And so James implies, neither should we as spiritual siblings, because favoritism and family don't fit. Number two, number two, favoritism of this sort is in fact a sin. It's what the whole second half of this extended passage is all about. Won't have time to dig into it too deeply. But it's clear, James says, that favoritism is breaking the law of love, what he calls the royal law, the sum of all things that God commands and obligates of his children to love your neighbor as yourself. He describes favoritism in verse four as arising from evil thoughts, evil thoughts. Is that too strong? He calls it a sin in verse 9. If you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. And so whether if it's intentional or if it's unintentional, because you're just relating to people the way that you normally do, even though love always calls you to step outside of yourself in regard for other people around you. This is what Jesus did in his incarnation, right? Stepping outside of himself and stepping into our skin, seeing the world through our eyes and walking in our shoes. This is love. Here James says, 
It's not just a little sin, a little violation of love, a little problem, a small oversight. But you're breaking God's law. In fact, because you are acting like a judge. In verse 4, James says, Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So when we favor the rich and deny a seat to the poor, we're, ask, we're acting like judges over people, sentencing people to dishonor, pronouncing verdicts over them. You are acceptable. You are not. You are valuable to us. You are not. You belong. You do not. Which is an amazing act of arrogance, you see. Because you're essentially playing God. The God who tears right through pronouncements like that by the gospel of grace and says, no, not by who you are or how much you make. Not by how you perform or what you did for me lately. But by grace, by the performance of Jesus, I have loved you. I have forgiven you. I have accepted you. So don't you dare let anyone tell you you're not acceptable. You do belong, so don't you dare let anyone tell you that you don't. And if this is true for other members of the family, don't you dare tell them, whether by action or word, intentional or otherwise, that they don't belong, that they're not accepted, that they're not valued in the family of faith. First of all, James tells us that we are, in fact, brothers and sisters. The church is a family. Secondly, he reminds us that favoritism is a sin. Very serious. And third, and lastly, we'll close with this. He reminds us that God honors the poor. God honors the poor. Verse 5 and 6. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has God, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor. Talks about here in the way in which God has always had a, a special disposition in his heart to those who are very in touch with their need for God. Those that actually have on some level a spiritual advantage in being able to experience in tangible form that we are dependent creatures, that we do need a provider, that we do need help. And so, of course, James is not saying that all folks that struggle to make ends meet find God, but he is saying that there are a significant number of those who do, who are poor on the outside and yet inwardly rich in faith who have inherited the kingdom that God has promised to those who love him. God honors the poor and therefore so should we. Most of all, God honors the poor by becoming poor himself. The story of Jesus, of course, is that the eternal Son of God 
the natural heir of all things belonging to the Father, the kingdom, the riches of heaven. Though he was rich, says the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 8, he made himself poor so that you through him, though poor, might become rich in the sight of God. James alludes to the story in verse 1 when he says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Literally, he says they're the Lord of glory. The Lord of glory who stooped Low, so low that he totally transformed for all time the very definition of true glory. See, we look out at people and we see what our eyes see and we assess what they make and what they earn and what their value is in the eyes of the world and we discriminate treating people differently. Jesus gives us a new standard of glory and how we honor the glory of Christ in man. Because Jesus was the one who always deserved the best seat in the house, you see. And yet he chose to sit on the floor by our feet. Even washing our feet, serving us like a slave, dying on the cross the death that we deserved... So that now, to all believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, God says to you, here's a good seat for you. A seat at my table, the king's table. A place of honor, you see. A seat with my family, a seat on my throne, a seat of honor, a seat of glory. This is the Savior that we have. This is the glory that He redefines. This is the glory, He says, to build into the life of the church that's being recreated into the image of the Lord of glory. My brothers and sisters, believers in our Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. What does that look like here? Becoming more lovingly, joyfully inclusive in all that we are and all that we do. Let's pray. God, we look to you for help first to open our eyes, to see what we need to see, to acknowledge, to ask the right questions, to assess well, to assess humbly, not with a critical spirit but with a hope of transformation that you would give us grace to love our neighbors, to be a community like the one that you've painted before us, this portrait, a community of mercy, a community of inclusion, a community of glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing this song, Jesus Paid It All. A story of the one who laid down his glory made us who we are.